We're in the book of Matthew. We're just entering into chapter 17. This is the 49th lesson. And uh, we left off last week with a statement in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, that read this way. I tell you the truth. Some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. So, I want you to think about this, but obviously none of the men standing there that day saw Yeshua come into the fullness of his kingdom. And you know, if we look at Mark's rendering of this same event, he makes it even clearer as he says this. He says in chapter 9, verse 1, And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And so Mark leaves the Son of Man out and, and just says, you'll see this kingdom of God come. Now, the interpretations for this event are many, but the two that make the most sense are these men are either referring to the taking up of Yeshua into the clouds and the subsequent outpouring of the Spirit of God in Acts chapter 2 would be one. But the one I want to look at today, the one I prefer, is the second. And it's the one we're going to look at. And Yeshua, I think Yeshua is referring to The next event that happens in the book of Matthew, the transfiguration of Yeshua on the mountain. Now, the retelling of this event varies in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But as usual, we can can attribute these discrepancies uh, to the audience that that they're writing to. And as we've seen, Matthew seems to be bent on showing the people of Israel that first, Messiah is divine. He's the divine nature of Messiah. Second, that he is the Messiah. And third, that he's the prophet like unto Moses. All three of which are clearly going to betray, be portrayed in his telling of this event in Matthew chapter 17. So let's look at the first few verses of this, or first verse of this amazing passage. It says, After six days, Yeshua took with him Peter... James and John, the brother of James, and led them on a high mountain by themselves. And so the positioning here of this story and its beginning is an amazing allusion to the plan of God. Remember, in chapter 16, we're told that the key to being part of this assembly of Yeshua at the end of days was the revelation that Yeshua is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, and that's the foundation of the assembly at the end of days. Also remember, last week we ended with this discourse on discipleship, how Yeshua told us the key to being one of his disciples was to pick up your cross and follow him. We're to lose our life. And follow Messiah. Allow Messiah to live through us. We are to be true disciples and follow the Master in all things, walking in His actual footsteps. And then in this first verse of this passage, He takes His disciples up on a high mountain with Him. And notice it says it happens after six days. And also notice it's by themselves. So only the disciples of Yeshua are taken up. And so one can't help but draw the parallel with the 7,000-year plan of God. After 6,000 years, because with a day, with the Lord, a day is as a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years are as a day. And after 6,000 years, we're told Yeshua will take his disciples up to be with him. 
And we can find that in Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians, where it says, In the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead shall rise, and those who are left will be caught up with Yeshua to meet Yeshua. But that's just the beginning of the amazing things that we can derive from this passage. Remember, there are distinct parallels that Matthew brings out between Yeshua and Moses. And let's read the next verse. And remember that Matthew is a bent on showing us that Yeshua is the prophet like unto Moses. It says, There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And notice it says, His face shone like the sun. His face radiated in the glory of God. Just as Moses, when he was finished speaking with God, we're told his face radiated because so much that he had to cover his face. And so we see this similarity. But we see something else a little different as well. At Sinai, remember, Moses had to cover his face. But here Yeshua does not. So Yeshua reveals his glory to his disciples. At Sinai, the glory is concealed. It's veiled, if you will. But here, for the disciples, they see the glory of God and and the Redeemer, Yeshua. And Shaul must have put these two things together as well because... Uh, this revealing of the glory of Messiah, as he writes to the Corinthians, he says in chapter 4 and verse 5, he says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Yeshua as Lord, Messiah Yeshua as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for, this, for, Messiah, for Yeshua's sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Messiah Yeshua. Another parallel would be that both of these are set on top of a mountain. After he's transfigured, uh, there appears with him Moses and Elijah, as we're going to read in the next verse. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Yeshua. Now, there are, again, many, many ways to interpret this verse. Since One, since Yeshua just spoke of the way he's going to suffer, they may be hinting at something here through the fate of these two. First, that he will die and be buried as Moses was buried, but also that he'll be taken up in the clouds as Elijah was taken up. They may be hinting at the fate of those in the kingdom, that some will be resurrected and taken up like Moses, or some will be just taken up like Elijah. But the way I think makes most sense is that In this speaking with Moses and Elijah, he's showing that he is the embodiment of the Torah, or Moses, and the prophets, or Elijah. You see, he's the prophet like Moses who was to come. And what lends credibility to this is the moment that the bat kol from heaven speaks, and he will say, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. A cloud overshadows them, and then at its departing, only Yeshua remains thereby showing Yeshua's superiority over Moses and Elijah. Luke gives us some light into their conversation. If we read in the book of Luke, chapter 9 and verse 30, it says, Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Yeshua. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And notice it says, They appeared and they spoke about his departure. And the word for departure there is exodus. They spoke about his exodus. 
They spoke of his death and exodus from this age. And, and if we look at this conversation between, the last conversation between the Lord and Moses, we find this in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy in verse 4. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. Notice the last conversation between the Lord and Moses was of his departure. And so we see the parallels here are many. And Peter gives gives this response to all of this. He says, Peter said to Yeshua, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter says, it's good for us to be here. I'll put up three Sukkot. Three Sukkot. The Greek word used there is skene. It means tent, tabernacle, hut, which would be the equivalent of Sukkot in Hebrew. And so we can take this a couple of ways. We could say, some people have said, well, maybe this has happened during the Feast of Sukkot which is highly unlikely if you look at the surrounding text. Second, we could say, or we could see that maybe Peter understood Jewish eschatology and knew that the festival of Sukkot, or tabernacles, was prophetic of the Messianic kingdom, which he's surely getting a glimpse of here. But he makes a mistake. What mistake does he make? Well, he kind of puts these three men on the same level. I'll make three Sukkot, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And that's not the case because Yeshua takes preeminence over Moses and Elijah. So the Lord is quick to correct him of his mistake as the cloud or a bot coal from heaven appear. It says this in verse 5, And while he was speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So here we have Moses and Elijah, the embodiment of the Torah and the prophets, and Abat Kol says, this is my son. Listen to him. In other words, this is my son. His words take preeminence over what has gone before. And one can't help but be drawn to the words of Deuteronomy chapter 18 with this event. And verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. When you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. And the Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I have commanded him. If anyone doesn't listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. The Lord, in a bot coal, told Moses on the mountain on the day of the assembly that the prophet's words, the prophet that he was going to send, his words would take preeminence over the words of anyone else because they would be the very words of God. And here on another mountain, with Moses and Elijah and the disciples of Yeshua, the Lord confirms with a bot coal again from heaven to those present that he is the prophet and to confirm his preeminence as the cloud overshadows them. And when the cloud departs, there's no one left but Yeshua. You see, everything else has vanished and there's nothing but Yeshua. And when you get down to the nitty-gritty, this book 
the prophets, the Torah, is all about Yeshua. This book will, when everything is established, vanish. But Yeshua will remain. You see, because when it's all said and done, it's all about Yeshua. It's all about the King. The cloud enveloping them would also foreshadow Sukkot again. The Messianic Kingdom. The word for envelop in this verse is the Greek word episkiazo. And I put the definition up here. It means to overshadow. And so when the cloud enveloped them or cast, overshadowed them, cast a shadow on them, we could see how this would fit in the Sukkot scenario as we read this passage about the Messianic Kingdom. Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2 says, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and the glory of the survivors in Israel. And those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. And all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstain from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion, over all who assemble there, a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flaming fire by night. And the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter from the shade of the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the rain. With this passage, we can see that the Lord corrects Peter. He says, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. And with the cloud, the Lord says, not so, Peter. The Lord will create a sukkah over Jerusalem, and it will be a shelter from the heat of the day and the storm and the rain. So the allusions to Sukkot in this passage, I mean, are overwhelming. And again, we could take this vanishing of Moses and Elijah together in the clouds to be the Lord telling us that Moses who died and Elijah who was caught up and did not die are prophetic of what Paul will make so clear in the book of Thessalonians chapter 4. In verse 16 when he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead of Messiah will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So they hear this voice and they see this cloud. And what's their response? When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Yeshua came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. They were terrified at the sound of the voice from heaven. Again, I hate to be redundant about this, but Matthew is serious about taking us back to Moses because we see at Sinai, Exodus tells us this in verse 18 of chapter 20, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear and stayed at a distance. And so the the response of the disciples is very much the same response of the people at Mount Sinai. They hear the voice, and they're in fear. And the response of Yeshua, what did he say? Get up, don't be afraid. And what did Moses say in verse 20 of chapter 20? He says to the people, do not be afraid. All of these allusions to Moses are, are inescapable. And I'm sure this was Matthew's intent. He wanted the people of Israel to understand that here is the prophet like Moses who would speak the very words of God and like the rest of the prophets would pay with his life for speaking. 
He also wanted them to know that he would be resurrected as Moses had been resurrected and stood before him. Verse 8 says of chapter 17, And when they looked up, they saw no one but Yeshua. And finally again, as we've said, Yeshua's preeminence is shown. And the only one who's left is Yeshua. And with the words, listen to him. Verse 9 says, As they were coming down the mountain, Yeshua instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. You know, you have to think, why would Yeshua be so adamant about not telling anyone that he was the Messiah first? First of all, be, that he was the Messiah. Well, because in Judaism of the first century, as in today, it's not who you say you are. It's your deeds who show who you are. You know, I could say I was a prophet all day long. And not many people would believe me and shouldn't. However, if I walked around reading people's mail as Yeshua did the Samaritan woman and telling people what would befall them as Yeshua does with Peter and tell the people of coming events as he does with the destruction of the temple, then my deeds would show that I was a prophet. And I wouldn't need to proclaim it with words. And just to clarify, that was an example. I'm not a prophet. Right? Right? Not only that, there had already been many who came and claimed to be Messiah, but they didn't do what the Messiah was supposed to do. There, Josephus tells us of a, of a Simon around 4 BCE, a former slave of Herod the Great, who rebelled and was killed by the Romans, claiming to be Messiah. There was also a shepherd around 2 BCE who led a rebellion with his four brothers and proclaimed himself to be Messiah. And another one, Judas of Galilee, Around six common era that led a revolt that was defeated by Rome. He claimed to be Messiah. And then there's one that we all should be familiar with. One who led a revolt that led to the Jewish people being dispersed from the land. In, in 135 common era, his name was Bar Kokhba. The lesson, and the one Yeshua understood in Matthew as well, is the one that Bob Zimmerman would say. It's not words, but deeds to tell the truth. So you don't know who Bob Zimmerman is. It's Bob Dylan. His real name is Zimmerman. Anyway, they had also seen the divine nature of Messiah. And that would be something that wouldn't be revealed till after his resurrection. And again, for the same reason, it could not and should not be revealed until then, until it was accomplished. There would still be those who would deny his glory even after it was revealed and his divine nature after the resurrection. And we, as we spoke of a few weeks ago, there's still some today that deny him. But the fact is his divine nature has been established in the mouths of many witnesses of his resurrection, of his being caught up in the clouds. It's also been established with many witnesses like you and I whose lives have been saved, whose lives have been changed, whose lives have been healed by just calling on his name. Those who have called on his name who were saved and healed. Next, the disciples ask him this in verse 10. The disciples ask him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Yeshua replied, 
to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. So the teachers of the law taught, and Scripture declares this as well, that Elijah must come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And I want to read one of these passages. It's in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 4. It says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you a prophet, Elijah, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. I want you to think about this prophecy for a moment. Notice it says, if the hearts of the children don't turn and the hearts of the fathers don't turn, the Lord will strike the land with a curse. And the word for curse there is, is the Hebrew word karem, and it means doomed, extermination, under destruction. So understand that if Elijah come and the hearts of the fathers do not turn, it's going to mean destruction. Well, hey, that's exactly what happened. They failed to recognize Yochanan as the Elijah. They also failed to heed the words of the prophet like Moses. And they failed to see Yeshua was the Messiah. And what happened? Destruction came. And knowing that, Yeshua says this, But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. But have done to him everything they wished. In the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So Yeshua tells his disciples they will not turn as Malachi warns and so he's hinting at the destruction that's going to come. And it does come. First with the temple in 70 common era and then in 135 common era the dispersion of the Jewish people off the land and guess what? The land will be cursed. It's only in the last 75 years that it's began to blossom again. It was cursed for thousands of years. But understand this as well. If Elijah came and he didn't turn the hearts of the fathers and their rejection did bring about the destruction, there remains the coming of Elijah to prepare the way again for Messiah that will fulfill what he said. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. This prophecy has to be fulfilled. Elijah will come and turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And this time, God will not strike the land with a curse. This prophecy has to be completed. Amen? And it is. Let's look at Revelation chapter 11. We see it again. It says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the sky. It will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have the power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Well, who called down fire to consume the sacrifice? Who shut up the sky so it wouldn't rain? Oh, Elijah did that. Who turned water into blood and called down plagues? 
Oh, Moses did that. So the two who will come are coming in the power and the anointing of Moses and Elijah, just as John had done. And they're going to be hated by the world because they're going to be preaching from Jerusalem. They're going to be calling down plagues that will strike the world. And we're told that the world, for the most part, still will not repent because after those first set of plagues, what does it say? Still, they did not repent. However, in the very next chapter, we're told of some people who do repent because of the preaching of Elijah at this time. The hearts of the people of Israel will be softer and their hearts will turn. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1 says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon, under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Who's the woman? Who's the woman? We're going to find out later that it's a male child. And what happens to the male child? Verse 5 says, And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Who was snatched up to God and to the throne? Only Yeshua. There's another way we know that this passage speaks about Israel. If we compare it to another passage in Genesis chapter 37, it says, one of Joseph's dreams. Then he had another dream and he told his brothers, listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. The woman is Israel. And what happens to her? Because her heart is turned. We read in verse 6, the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. No destruction this time. This time Israel is sheltered, taken to a place prepared for her by God where she'll be taken care of for three and a half years while he brings judgment on the rest of the world. So this is an amazing passage, one of my favorites about the end of days. Amen?